0: Greetings. Hope you got your neuro coffee in hand. I got mine. Mm. And that is perfect as usual. All right, I got a Q&A question that I was pretty excited about because it's referencing the terminology that we use to describe a lot of the things on my videos. And so I think there's a little bit of confusion in, in regard to those terms that we used to describe position and strategy and such, uh, because many of them are synonymous, but it, it requires a little bit of perspective to understand them. So we're going to try to clarify that in this video. And the question comes from Andrew and Andrew says one thing that would help me better understand and apply some of the concepts you reference in your videos is aligning more precisely on terminology, specifically some of the terms and concepts you frequently use feel synonymous, even though they're not. So what Andrew's talking about are things like an exhalation strategy, compression strategy, and concentric orientation. They're all related and they can be superimposed and therefore they can all occur at the same time under certain circumstances. But in certain contexts, maybe one is more influential or, or we're, we're speaking specifically more about one aspect of it. And so that element stands out a little bit more. And so that's why we need to use a specific terminology. But let's go through these and clarify. So he's got a list of terms that that he just asked me to clarify. And so let's knock them out one at a time. So his first one is flexion extension. Um, I tend to not use flexion extension all that much, other than to describe the traditional planar movements so we can have a conversation because flexion extension really doesn't exist in in our, our movement capabilities, that it was a planar movement to describe an observable movement, but because we only have one plane in which we move, which would be transverse plane, basically, and I even, I even question whether that one exists um, when we talk about space and such, but but um those are just traditional movements um flexion obviously is an external rotation movement extension is obviously an internal rotation movement so please keep that in mind as we go through those types of discussions that's just so we can communicate um it's just like talking in 3d when the the real world is in 4d But again that's another discussion we'll we'll just set that one aside um now we want to start looking at more of the 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 broad scope or, or global strategies And so when we talk about movement, there's only two strategies available to us, and that would be to expand or to compress. The easiest way to look at this is to look at a worm and how they move through space. So a worm is this this essentially just a a tube full of fluid, and the worm shifts the fluid. It expands on one side, compresses on the other, and it slowly works its way um, through space, however it wants to move. And not to be insulting, but you're basically a worm. And so we would move through space in the same way. So from a global perspective, we create expansion or compression that allows us to change our shape and allows us to move through space. So from a broad scope, we either have an expansion strategy or a compressive strategy. Now, if we go one step deeper and we're still staying global, we think about, okay, well, how do we influence our ability to expand and compress? And one of those strategies is through breathing. And so as we breathe in, obviously we expand, we create more volume inside the body. And as we exhale, we we reduce that volume. And so that's one of our primary strategies to create this expansion and compressive strategy. And so we can also say that, well, if we're using inhalation to influence our expansion then we can we can discuss that element of the strategy if we're talking about exhalation and compression then we can talk about that aspect of the strategy now obviously we don't have to move air to create compression and expansion strategies And so under those circumstances, we might not use the terms inhalation and exhalation, but if breathing is one of the primary drivers, then we wanna include that in the description. So we have expansion and compression, we have inhalation and exhalation, and those are synonymous. And so again, those are the broad scope global strategies. Now, if we think about how Breathing influences the position of the entire body. So as I breathe in, it tends to be an external rotation based overall uh, strategy of of the the human. As I exhale, it tends to be an internal rotation by a strategy. And so what this does is it changes the, the position and the direction of many of our joints towards internal or external rotation. And so in doing so, muscles that surround those joints will pick up either a concentric or an eccentric orientation based on the position of the joint. And so then this is going to allow certain motions to occur, and this is going to prevent certain motions from, from occurring. And so that's why we wanna use the concentric to eccentric orientation. So we're looking more of a local strategy uh, around a joint or a smaller area of the body. And so we can use the concentric to eccentric orientation as the descriptor. So let me give you a for instance. So if I eccentrically orient the posterior hip Then that's going to allow hip flexion to occur. If I eccentrically orient the posterior hip, chances are I'm going to get a concentric orientation on the opposing side. Now, here's the really cool thing we can take our global expansion compression strategy that we talked to that that grossly describes movement and we can move that to the local level when we talk about concentric and the eccentric orientation. So let's use the hip example again. So if I expand the posterior hip, that's eccentric orientation. If I compress the anterior side, that's concentric orientation. So I take this, this global representation of expansion and compression and I can look at that locally because it's going to be the exact same strategy. The universal principle is when nature finds something that works, it repeats itself. And so this is one of those elements. This would, We could use this as a fractal representation of movement where I'm looking at it at a smaller scale at joint level and I'm looking at a macro scale when I'm talking about global movement of the body. And then we want to finally talk about the overcoming and yielding action of, of muscles. And so. What we need to understand is that if, I'm, if I have a concentrically oriented muscle, that position of the muscle, so we're taking a snapshot in time, that position of the muscle when I'm concentrically oriented means that it would be shorter than its resting position if it had full excursion from its full extensibility to full compression. And so again so we could think of that as the traditional concentric contraction would be a shortening contraction what i want you to look at it as is a shortened position relative to its middle wherever that imagined middle may be Um, so it's behaving in a shortened position when we talk about eccentric orientation we're talking about the opposite so eccentric actually means away from midline And so an eccentric orientation would be a muscle that is positioned longer than it's imagined middle, wherever it may be, if it has full excursion. And so now I can describe two two different positions of the muscle, and again, as a a snapshot in time, so I can describe um, its length. But now I need to describe what it's trying to do. And so if it is limiting motion, then I would describe that as an overcoming contraction. So that would be a muscle that is attempting to shorten, to limit motion in the opposing direction. So if I use my elbow and, and if I position myself at 90 degrees of, of elbow flexion, and if I brace here, but I'm trying to, to pull this way, that would be an overcoming contraction. And if I am trying to hold position against the resistance that's trying to move me, that would be yielding. So in both circumstances, the arm doesn't have to move, but my intentional strategy is different. So if I was positioned in a lengthened position, that would be an eccentric orientation. And if I was trying to shorten it and was being successful or just attempting to shorten it, that's still an overcoming contraction. If I am moving in that direction so yielding contractions allow movement to occur that means it's giving way and allowing motion to occur that would be a yielding action and so now we have this this uh, broad scope understanding of terminology that we have to describe the overall strategy how does that strategy occur through breathing Um, How does the the position affect the orientation of a muscle? And then what action am I trying to produce? And so now you can see that I have an expansion compression strategy. I have an inhalation exhalation strategy. I have concentric and eccentric orientation. And then I have overcoming and yielding actions. So hopefully that helps you in, in sort of bringing this to a level of understanding that it becomes useful to you. Um, If you have any questions specifically about any of these terms, please throw them out there. We're gonna use these in context um, in as we progress through videos. And obviously if you look back through some of the older videos, you're gonna see these terms used. So now maybe those are a little bit more meaningful to you, but uh, hopefully that's helpful. And then um, we will keep up with the Q and A's and I'll see you later. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how we acquire range of motion and why stretching may fail in many cases. It doesn't mean that stretching is useless. It doesn't mean that there's never a time and a place for it. It just means that the way it's applied may actually influence whether you have a favorable outcome or not. So we're going to use a simple representation of a synovial joint. So this could be any synovial joint that we're talking about um, that has muscles on either side. We're also going to use a a pretty simplified model that doesn't really exist. And so we're gonna fall back on the old school antagonist agonist relationship around a joint because it is a simple representation even though it probably doesn't really exist. But again, it'll give us a, a clear enough picture that we can create some understanding. So I drew some joints up here on the board. And and so this first one is going to be our simple representation of a synovial joint at rest. And so I have musculature on the outside in red. I have synovium in purple and then I've I've got the synovial fluid inside the joint in blue. And so at rest, we're going to make an assumption that there's some sort of evenness in regards to concentric to eccentric orientation on either side. So we're in some middle range of, of the, the musculature. And so the pressure inside the joint is relatively even. And so we have this, this resting position of the joint. If I was to increase the concentric orientation on both sides, so I take an agonist and an antagonist, and I increase concentric orientation of both of those, those muscles, what I get is a compressive strategy. So I'm pulling the two bones together, the synovial fluid. The synovial fluid gets pushed out of the joint equally in both directions. And so what I have is, is, concentric on concentric. This actually creates a very stable position of a joint, but it doesn't allow motion to occur. So this actually may occur in someone that has a very, very strong training experience in the gym. So they, they lift heavy weights, they carry a lot of muscle mass, or they perform it at, at high rates of speed or high forces and so they use a lot of concentric on concentric muscle activity to create stability in a joint so, so we could have that scenario going on under normal circumstances for normal movement what we actually have to do is create a gradient across the joint so we'll have one side of the joint that has a, a high pressure strategy which would be concentric and then the other side we have uh, a lower pressure strategy, which will be eccentric, and this is what allow, mo- allows movement to occur under most situations. And so as long as we can create this scenario, this is what allows us to recapture range of motion because the people that come in with restrictions tend to have some sort of concentric bias or a compressive strategy or an exhalation strategy that actually prevents motion from occurring. And so I could have the same thing here where on one side of the joint I would be biased towards concentric orientation um, and then on the other side I would be biased towards eccentric orientation and what that may allow is a lot of motion in one direction but not a lot of motion in the other direction so for instance if i am biased towards an inhalation strategy i may show a lot of external rotation in my joints and not very much internal rotation or vice versa if i am in an exhaled strategy so again this can represent um, my ability to move through space under normal circumstances if i can create concentric here eccentric here or it may represent a strategy that limits my motion in one direction now if we were to apply a stretch that fails. So viscoelastic properties of tissues aside. So we have viscoelastic tissues that may show a temporary change in the ability to acquire range of motion just because of the property of the tissues. But what we're talking about here is the the contractile element in regard to to the muscles. If I take a concentric on concentric situation and I pull on one side, I may actually create a small enough gradient to acquire temporary small changes in range of motion. But ultimately what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a strain on one side of the joint as I try to acquire an eccentric orientation where I have a muscle that is trying to stay concentrically oriented. And so under these situations, this is where stretching is going to fail. So maybe you get an increase in stretch tolerance, maybe you get a temporary change in viscoelastic properties of tissues, but ultimately this is why stretching is going to fail. So what happens when stretching does work? So say for instance, say I'm doing a long seated toe touch and I do it over time, and eventually, I find that my flexibility improves where I can actually take my forehead to my knees, and I say, wow, my hamstrings really increased in their length. That's not really happening. What you're actually doing is you're actually creating this scenario in a favorable way, where you're actually able to capture a gradient that allows greater motion to occur at the hip joint, which might allow you to bend forward more, or you're allowing the posterior aspect of the thorax and pelvis to expand to capture its inhalation capabilities and then i again capture a gradient that allows me to move better so the bottom line of this entire situation is for normal movement to occur or for your ability to recapture ranges of motion, you have to be able to create a gradient inside the joint or inside the space. So inside the space would be inside the thorax, inside the joint would be inside any synovial joint. If I cannot move the fluid from side to side across the joint, I cannot recapture range of motion. That's why using breathing and position and trying to Uh, acquire concentric orientation of eccentric musculature and in trying to uh, capture eccentric orientation of concentric musculature is so so important in reacquiring range of motion because I have to have this scenario, I have to have a gradient that exists to allow movement to occur. So if I superimpose concentric activity on top of a rib cage, and especially when we're talking about narrow ISAs, one of the things that actually closes the infraternal angle is the external oblique, which is oriented as such. So once again, I have a genetically predetermined orientation of how this musculature will be laid down across the axial skeleton. Just like the orientation of the ribs themselves. Well, when did you start and why did you start? Um, A lot of it, so late 40s. Okay. It, It was kind of hit and miss though and um a lot of stuff fell into place when i did this 50 year old thing yeah and it's not that you have to wait for a special age or anything like that sure um but but it was just a matter of of structure and again the the predecisions and creating a process and and again goes back to self-regulation so the decision-making processes the the uh, capacity to to stick to um, the, the 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 predecided elements, and and so what what the what meditation does is it is it gives you that that ability to recognize when you are off track. Yes. So that's so so that's what people don't realize. I think I think they think that, that meditation is is kind of a something else where you don't react. When the reality is, is you can't stop your brain from reacting to the environment or, right. or, or anything. But what what the meditation does is it provides you that that the big brother element where the prefrontal cortex can actually look at the situation, and go, okay, we don't have to get all flipped out about this thing. Um, and and so the, the self-regulatory element is is for me the most important part um, in in lowering your stress levels and recognizing. Um, that things aren't either as bad or as good as as they may be, and it sort of just keeps you on this even keel. Right. You know, I, I've had to yeah. dump the app. Really? It became a just. Dis- yeah, it started to interrupt. Oh yes. It started to interrupt yeah. a- at that point. And, and again, so so you start with the guided, and then and then you slowly move away from that, and then you start to recognize the fact that, that okay, um, where I'm where I am right now, I don't need. And, and Andy, exactly. Andy's the guy on, on yep. Headspace. He's obviously brilliant, which, you know, it, and he's very soothing at first. Yes. But, like I said, it, it starts to become an interruption now because you are you start to anticipate or waiting for the voice. Yes. Rather than dealing with your stuff. So that's yes. what people don't realize either is that the stuff that comes and goes in your head is you dealing with your own issues and yeah. processing them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and but it's scary for people because it brings up you know, heavy stuff sometimes, like horrible regrets and 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 past behaviors that you're not proud of. But that's where you deal with that stuff, and yes. and people don't realize that, that that's but that's how you get rid of it too. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, but- Highly recommend, highly recommend that you do at least an hour at some point in time of okay. just being in your own head. Okay. Holy cow, it's scary in there. Yeah, but incredibly useful. Yeah, it's like it, the, the the fastest way to dump anxieties and then past behaviors that you're not proud of and regrets or or ruminating thoughts that 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 that, that you know interfere with your ability to focus and concentrate by for the most powerful thing I've ever done.